Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and I started this podcast a couple years ago because I love talking with and learning from other researchers. Today I'm really glad to bring you my full conversation with Professor Scott Denning. Scott is a professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University, and if you listen to the simple, serious, solvable episode from last week, then you've already heard a segment from this full conversation. But there's a lot of good stuff here. We talk about his experience teaching a semester at sea, which was so rudely interrupted by the global pandemic not too long ago. We talk about Scott's scientific work on the carbon cycle and how he got into that. We talk about his pathway from geology, like hard rock field geology, to atmospheric science, which is obviously that's where he ended up. And of course, we do talk about his outreach work and his simple, serious, solvable message, 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 there we go, that you heard last time. You can find Professor Scott Denning on Twitter at Air Scott Denning, A-I-R Scott Denning. And you can learn more about his message at simpleserioussolvable.org. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. Okay, I want to get into it quickly. There's a lot of good stuff there that I want to get you to as quickly as possible. But I've got one uh, special rare thing for you today. Instead of the usual transition music, I'm going to share something from... About a decade ago. Do you remember a decade ago when everyone was making auto-tune remixes of everything? Well, my friend Walter Hanna made one of those about a decade ago for a holiday skit that we did, uh, which used to be an annual tradition in the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. I don't know if they still do it. But anyway, he he made one of these for one of these holiday skits uh, back in 2009, I think it was, 2010. And I think it's amazing. It gets stuck in my head frequently. So I hope that you enjoy it. So thanks again to Walter Hanna for the transition music today. Let's go ahead. Let's get into this conversation with Professor Scott Denning. Here we go. I'm Scott Denning, and I'm a professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University. Today, we're going to talk about the greenhouse effect, how it works, and why it's important for climate change. All of the energy, energy that comes into the Earth, the Earth has to get to the Earth by, by electromagnetic radiation. By, by, by electromagnetic radiation. The energy that comes from the sun is not enough to keep us warm here at the surface. Two-thirds of the energy that warms us up at the surface of the Earth is from the warm air that also radiates these waves. It all came from the sun, but some of it gets recycled. It goes up, gets caught by these little greenhouse molecules and sent back down. CO2 and H2O together constitute less than 1% of our atmosphere. Okay? Okay! Okay? Okay! Let's talk a little bit about those molecular dances. The energy comes up from the Earth, hits the molecule, and it's vibrating like... Like... Molecular dances. It could go... Or de-excite and send that energy back out. But they don't really do much. There's not a heck of a lot you can do with two balls on a stick. CO2 is different. It can also do other stuff because it's got three atoms. It can go... Molecular dances. Let it go... 
control molecules even better at dancing and vibrating than the CO2 molecule because it can go like that, but it can also go or it can do this swing thing. It can even do handsprings. I, I'm not going to try that here. That would be kind of dangerous. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Oh, no problem. Happy to do it. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. What's your background there? Uh, that was my last sunrise on Semester at Sea. We were... Um, we spent months um, sailing uh, across the oceans um, looking for places that didn't have COVID-19 yeah. and um, ultimately got dumped off in South Africa. So this was somewhere in the Indian Ocean, um, east of South Africa, before before we docked. We, um, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, when I took this picture, um, there were like, I don't know, 50 students on the stern and it was six o'clock in the morning and we were all very happy to see the sunrise and we knew we were coming into land, but we didn't know yet that we were going to be um, dumped off in Cape Town and, and just sent home. So um, they, they said, we're not, we're, you can't be on the ship anymore, even though the yeah. ship is uh, COVID free, right, <laughs> you, you right. have to go scatter. Um, so yeah, it was, um, was actually really fairly traumatic. I mean, uh, they, they sort of, um, b because the home office for Semester at Sea is here at CSU, um, we were eight time zones east, and um, they sent a broadcast email to everybody at like 10 o'clock in the morning, um, ship time, and it was, uh, it was right in the middle of my class. So oh, I, I no. was teaching, I had like 300 students in this giant lecture and all of a sudden they were all like, ah, because they'd been told, you know, we're, we're done. We're getting off the ship tomorrow and we're out of here. Tomorrow. Oh my gosh. One day's notice. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, it had been sort of dribbling through week by week. Um, hmm. Even from January. I mean, we were worried about, uh, China and then we skipped China and we went straight from Japan to Vietnam and then um, When did it start? We, oh, we started in San Diego yeah. uh, So we sailed across the entire Pacific uh, <laughs> You know uh, There's this saying about it's a small world But um, you probably know because you're an oceanographer, but oh my god the world <laughs> is ginormous You know if you, if you cross it at 15 knots um, <laughs> It's just so big. It took us three weeks to cross the Pacific. It took us yeah. two weeks to cross the Indian Ocean. Um, we stopped in, like, just for eight hours in Hawaii. Uh, and then we were about a week in Japan and two weeks in Vietnam, uh, about a week in Mauritius. Mm. Um, and then they dumped us off in South Africa. Wow. Um, a bunch of people spent some time in South Africa before flying home because there was still no virus in South Africa huh. uh, to speak of. They, they weren't on lockdown. They weren't um, really very worried about it yet. But by the time I got home, I mean, it was, it was terrible here. Yeah. So what, uh, I mean, I'm not expecting you to be like a spokesperson for the semester at sea. I'm just yeah. kind of curious, like what was the, what was the objective or like, what's the idea? Right. Well, it's been around. Um, I think it was founded in 1963. So it's, it's been around for a really long time. Um, and, 
basically it's um it's a semester at sea. So, so there are about 560 students, um, undergrads from um, certainly all over the US, maybe about 10, 15% of them are international students, but most of them are, are American students. Um, mostly from, oh, business, humanities, uh, not mostly scientists. Hmm. Um, and they, uh, they take a full load of um, sort of broad range of, of undergraduate classes. So English classes, business classes, you know, art, um, history, oceanography. I taught oceanography. Um, and then everyone takes a course called Global Studies, which is uh, kind of a mix between, oh, intercultural communication, uh, sociology, econ, and um, global change uh, mm-hmm. about the, the world that we live in. And we um, stop at all these countries. And we didn't because of the virus, but yeah. typically uh, they visit about a dozen different uh, countries during the course of a semester. And we only teach classes during the, um, d- during the days that we're at sea. So mm-hmm. we, we teach... Um, yeah, you know, pretty much seven days a week while we're at sea, and then uh, we get you know a week or so on land, and there are many, many organized uh, activities and trips um, in the countries: uh, cultural enrichment, history, natural history, whatever. Mm. Um, and then you get back on the ship and and sort of try to remind the students where they were in the classes, and oh, you, you have a homework due next week or whatever. Um, so I think the theory is is really it's a uh, it's international studies. So lots of universities, and in fact, um, not so much in our field, but uh, in many um, humanities and business degree programs, um, some sort of study abroad is required. And so many students will, for example, take a semester, you know, visiting at you know some university in Europe or Japan or China or whatever. But in this case, you, you, um, you do it at sea and you have your, um, your entire semester and they get, you know, full college credit. It's accredited. It's, um, it's, it's quite well organized. Like this was the 128th uh, semester that they've run the thing. Hmm. Um, so I taught global studies, which meant I had every student on the ship in my class, which was amazing. Uh, and then I also taught oceanography, um, just at one section of oceanography where I only had 30 students. Um, but my big, my big course was uh, divided into two sections. I have about um, 300 students in each section. So there's a giant um, auditorium in the bow of the ship um, where everybody comes in in the mornings and does global studies. Uh, and, and then you sort of break out into lots of smaller classrooms for the rest of the day and people take their, uh, their, you know, regular courses. Plus there's all sorts of, oh, evening activities, lectures, um, social kinds of organization. Uh, there's about, um, I don't know, 30 faculty, um, 50 staff. Uh, so, so, I mean, it's like a floating college campus. I mean, they, they've got, um, it's, it's of course, um, 
staterooms or cabins as opposed to dorms, but yeah. they're organized sort of corridor by corridor with, you know, like a uh, um, residence director and um, uh, older people that are uh, sort of living with the students. Um, yeah, the RA actually, thing. Part of the charm of it really is that it's a living learning community. So everybody gets to know each other and, you know, you're spending 24 seven together for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, I had never done anything like that where uh, I, well, I've never done anything like that. I've ne never really been on a ship before. I've never been um, at sea. I've never um, taught uh, undergraduate classes with hundreds of people. Uh, and I have never, since I was since I was an undergrad, I, I have never lived with hundreds of twenty year olds um, <laughs> in a long, long time. So it hasn't was come amazing. up in a while. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's fantastic. I mean, I I would absolutely recommend it um, to almost any undergrad. Uh, and I mean, it takes a special uh, circumstance for people in our field to be able to do this because you're pretty much cut off uh, when you're at sea, uh, very, very limited internet connectivity, um, mm -hmm. just a trickle. It's like 500 of us sharing a dial-up modem, you know, you can, yeah. you can download your email, but that's about it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, uh, I think I was well positioned for it because I love teaching, I love students, um, and I'm getting towards the end of my career where it wasn't going to destroy my research um, to be cut off like that. So, so I think for somebody your age, it would be very hard um, to just drop off the research face of the earth for four months um, yeah. uh, and, and still have a career to come back to, right? Because well, you, you have a lot of stuff to do day to day, week to week that, that you can't just be... Um, well, maybe maybe people do field work like that. Well, maybe although you know, depending on how long the lockdown continues to go <laughs> on, that's that's basically what's happening to me at the moment. <laughs> the, yeah, but you but, have internet. You, yeah, you, that's the big difference. Uh, it, it's an enormous difference. I mean, it, I also we, have an eight-year-old. Oh, and an eight-year-old. Yeah. Well, that's another <laughs> one. Although people with eight-year-olds came on the ship. I mean, we, the, yeah. there were a lot of kids. Uh, faculty oh, okay. bring their kids. That's cool. Um, and there were a whole community of ship kids hmm. that, um, you know, they had school for them every day on the ship. And uh, it was actually fantastic for kids. Maybe uh, eight is okay. Uh, something like 10 or 11 is, is like ideal um, hmm. because they can just run around and be free and roam the ship uh, in packs and they they can't really get into that much trouble right there's only so far they can go anywhere they go even if you don't know where they are they're they're within a few hundred feet of their parents um, and uh so i i think it was absolutely fantastic for grade school kids uh, they they uh just like i had never hung out with 20 year olds um most 10 year olds have not hung out with 20 year olds and uh, it really was wonderful for sort of young teens to, to be accepted into this culture, undergrad culture, and, um, but do it in kind of a safe way where they're, they're, you know, there's only so much trouble you can get into on a ship. Plus, they very, uh, 
carefully limit alcohol. Um, there, there is alcohol, but it's, uh, it's rationed yeah, for the students. Yeah. Um, they're very careful about that because in years past they had all kinds of trouble. Um, so any, anyway, it was a wonderful experience, probably the best, uh, teaching experience I've ever had. And that's saying something. Yeah. That's amazing. And I was thinking about that that could be really important for the students to simply see other parts of the world because, you know, for Americans, it's really easy for us to just stay in the country. It's a pretty big place. We can just kind of, you know, put your blinders on. If you're not careful, you can just like plop down and not realize really that there are other societies out there that are functioning and doing things in a totally different way, but working, you know. It's fantastic. I mean, I think in a normal voyage, a normal semester at sea, uh, that's exactly right. Um, Ours was a little different because we kept getting uh, diverted by the virus and had to spend, you know, weeks and weeks at sea in between ports. So we, um, we didn't get as much of that as I think the typical semester at sea experience. Uh, But even still, I I mean, uh, we, we, we spent quite a bit of time in Japan and uh, did sort of um, deep dives into urban culture in Japan, religious culture in Japan. Um, I spent a night on a snowy mountaintop um, in in, (laughs) freezing cold uh, indoor temperatures in um, in a monastery um, hosted by monks um, Hmm. with a bunch of students. Um, That that was just amazing. Uh, We we spent two weeks in Vietnam and... um, just incredible culture in Vietnam. I, I was I was absolutely blown away um, by both urban and rural culture in Vietnam, uh, by the t- tremendous amount of um, positive outlook and um, embracing the 21st century in innovative, different ways that you just don't see in the developed world. I mean, I, it, it was just fantastic. It, it was really, really wonderful. Hmm. Plus teaching oceanography in the middle of the ocean, there's just nothing like it. I mean, uh, <laughs> you get a reference point. You can keep, you know, in all of your slides, you can say, and here we are. <laughs> and or, here are you know, look, are... look out the window, right. You know, learning about, uh, about waves or about ocean color or about, um, currents or about general circulation, um, about uh, fisheries and and marine biology. It it was just fantastic. And and of course, we saw many, many different things. We, we, uh, I'll never forget, really, we we were sailing from Hawaii to Japan, middle of January, and uh, we were in the trades and um, had literally thousands of kilometers of fetch behind us. Uh, so following seas, beautiful weather, um, absolutely just perfect, comfortable, sunny, lovely. And then we, we crossed a boundary in the ocean and the atmosphere. And suddenly we're in the middle of the, the westerlies in, in the middle of winter. And, uh, you know, within about 45 minutes, we went from, um, this placid uh, following seas thing in, into like 15 foot swells uh, head on. The ship is like bouncing up and down and um, just incredible. Uh. And I, I've always thought of that as, you know, a textbook 
you think of the trades and the westerlies and the sort of averages and in sort of bands, but in real life, they're like these hard lines yeah. across the ocean where it completely changes from, from you know, across 10 miles of, of ocean from uh, something that's certainly the, the subtropics to something that's certainly uh, the dead of winter in the North Pacific. Um, Feels it, it like was a amazing. front. Yeah. Feels like it, a front coming amazing. through, but it's you moving. And, and then, you know, for that matter, the, the next day teaching in the bow, you know, I've got 300 students in this room. And the, the lecture hall is right in the bow, so the bow moves more than anywhere else in the ship. And uh, I'm up on the stage right in the freaking bow, and, and the ship would rise, and it would be like my, my knees would have to compress because I would weigh twice what I normally weighed, and then it would fall. And it was like, oh, I could almost just float <laughs> off the stage. And the screen is swinging back and forth. And everybody in the audience is like, oh, you know, it was amazing. It was just amazing. Never experienced anything like that before. Like you get in the elevator when, if, if, you get, if you're on a, an elevator that has a rapid acceleration, then yes. you, know, you can feel heavier, you can feel lighter as it goes down. Except, of course, it's rhythmic, so you can, you can sort of feel it coming, you know? Yeah. It's just fantastic. Um, that was one yeah, of the things. I, I would recommend it to almost anybody. Um, and it, with the recognition that I was privileged to be in a position in my career where I could do this without um, sort of sacrificing uh, – professional requirements it was perfect for me i think you know research cruises can they're obviously going to be much smaller than that but on a research cruise you can get kind of a a similar kind of mini community coming together you know sure. for that period um you know may, maybe to a lesser extent the the crew because at least on the ships that i've been on the crew stays for much longer and the scientists kind of come and go so the crew are sort of like, well, this is our home. <laughs> You're welcome. So, you you know, there's a little bit of you need to respect their space and adjust to their space a little bit. But still, like, you get these little mini communities forming. Yeah. And it's, it is really unique experience kind of being out in the middle of nowhere. And these are the people you're with. Like, the, this is... There, you know, okay, you've got limited communication with the rest of the world, but you need to figure out how to make things work with these folks <laughs> that yeah, you're I, in close proximity with. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, of course, we had crew too, probably 200 crew on, on the ship. Um, but uh, to some degree, you know, they, well, they report to the captain. This is interesting. This is sort of two separate institutional things going on. On the one hand, you have 200 people who report to the captain through a very, you know, regimented chain of command, and they, they know exactly what their jobs are, uh, highly professional. And on the other hand, you've got um, 600 students and, and, you know, maybe 100 staff and, and families uh, that are reporting through a different line of uh, chain of command through deans and, uh, you know, um, sort of provost. So you, you've, you've got sort of this academic side, uh, which is just like any other university. I mean, there's like s sort of departmental politics and who's, you know, who's getting along with each other. Um, you got to worry about how, how you're doing with your syllabus and whether you're getting through the material and whether that exam was too hard and all that kind of crap. Um, <laughs> at the same time that, that there's this, you know, very large professional contingent of, of crew that, um, 
to some degree, they just sort of keep to themselves. I mean, they, they uh, as you said, it's their home. Um, yeah, it was wild. It was fascinating. Is really there a liaison between the academic side and the... Yeah. Because on the ship, that's the PSO, the principal scientific officer. It's like the liaison between the crew yeah. who's running the ship and then we the We have, uh, there's an executive dean um, who's sort of in charge of the whole academic side. And she has a an assistant, you know, whatever you call it, associate dean. Um, and they work uh, every day with the captain and the staff captain. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's like a whole... Uh, you know, they have to plan fuel and logistics and whether we're going to be able to birth here or there, especially with the virus. I mean, they were doing um, on the other side of the world from the home office. So they would be up in the middle of the night doing, doing teleconferences and figuring out, you know, what are the dangers in Malaysia and how, how many cases are there in, uh, in next country and whether or not we're going to have uh, visa problems. And it, it's amazing yeah. how much yeah. logistics there is. So when you were on the ship and teaching, I imagine one of the things that you probably taught was your, um, it's, it's famous to me anyway, your famous um, simple, serious, solvable, you know, climate change lecture. Sure. And I kind of cite that. I've cited that a bunch on this podcast. You know, it's a, con it's a concise message. It's a nice message. Um, and I thought it'd be cool to hear it directly from you, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, I basically just want to, you know, to, to use a phrase I use, I just want to put some quarters in your jukebox and like, <laughs> like maybe, so, you know. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. the three S's of climate change are simple, serious, and solvable. Uh, I try to always present it um, in that order and I give roughly equal weight to each of the three S's. So um, simple is how it works. Serious is why it's bad and solvable is what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. um, the, the simple thing, I, I think uh, many people in our field um, have forgotten how simple the, the basic story is. Uh, heat in minus heat out equals change of heat, right? This is the first law of thermodynamics and uh, when you put more heat into the earth than you let out, um, it warms up. And when you let out more than you put in, it cools off. And, and this is, you know, yeah. it, it's true of a pot of water. It's true of a planet. It's true of, of anything in the universe. And that's really the fundamental uh, reason why CO2 causes climate change and other greenhouse gases is because you're slowing down the emission of of heat radiation from the earth, but you're not reducing the incoming radiation from the sun. So of course it has to warm up. So um, re remarkably, this has been quite well understood for 160 years. And uh, it, it's not something that sort of scientists uh, dreamed up recently. In particular, mm -hmm. I think there's a very widespread misconception that is actually fed by the way we teach about climate change that uh, first we discovered the warming and then we did sort of correlations and, and figured out that there were sort of, you know, ice age correlations. And, but that's not at all the, the actual history of the discovery of global warming. The, the, the discovery of the, the uh, absorptive properties of the gases came first, mm -hmm. long before the warming, uh, yeah. by, by about a century. Uh, so so we, we've known for since um, the middle of the 19th century that, that CO2 absorbs right in the wavelengths that the Earth emits. 
And uh, it was predicted in the 19th century that uh, burning coal would change the alkaline radiation to the point that you'd have uh, significant global warming. So this is not something new. It's not unexpected. It, it's absolutely consistent with virtually everything yeah. that people know about temperature. Uh, you call never it mind Civil physics. War era science. Yeah, yeah. And over here, you can call it uh, Victorian era science over the here. Victorian, in sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Victorians uh, ha had this down. Um, so, so think of it as like steam locomotives and, and petticoats and, you know, uh, top hats, <laughs> that, that kind of era of, um, of science. It's not, it's not uh, quantum mechanics. It's not uh, relativistic. It's not um, difficult to understand. It's a sort of uh, grade school era understanding of science. So, so that's simple. Serious is, oh my gosh, it just gets worse and worse, right? So, so fundamentally, um, the, the, every bit of carbon that you burn produces CO2, and the CO2 is semi-permanent, right? So on timescales that we care about, on historical timescales, um, the CO2 will never go away. So when people say, how much warmer will it get? The answer is, it depends on the total amount of fossil fuel that's ever burned in history. And I think, yeah. again, people just don't understand this. Is it one degree or two degrees? It's however many degrees you want. And the only thing that matters is when you stop burning the stuff. Because once you've burned it, eh, you're done. It's, it's there in the air pretty much forever. I mean, thousands of years, it'll go away. But, but it, it's not going to go away the year after you stop or the decade after you stop or the century after you stop. It's going to be around for historically forever. Um, and the consequences of uh, large amounts of fossil fuel emissions are absolutely catastrophic, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the, if you don't stop burning it soon enough, you have things like uh, re repeated um, storm surge flooding of very, very densely populated cities. You have uh, crop failures and famine and uh, complete loss of, of ecosystems and all sorts of, of hydrologic changes that are almost certainly um, enough to cause economic catastrophe and perhaps collapse. So the, the consequences of failure, the consequences of um, failing to stop making it worse are absolutely unacceptable. And, and you know, we can explore this in some depth, but given the amount of time I gave to simple, that's probably enough to say about serious. Uh, we want sort of uh, equal time for each of the three S's. So simple, heat in minus heat out equals change of heat. Uh, serious, um, it just gets worse and worse until you stop making it worse. And if you don't stop soon enough, uh, it, it's economically catastrophic. And then solvable, it turns out is not that hard to understand either. Um, the, the solution is to stop setting carbon on fire. You, you know, there, there's really not that much hard to understand here. You, you have to stop digging up carbon and setting it on fire so that you stop making CO2. Well, how do you do that? There's basically um, two ways. One is to uh, live a decent life with less energy. And another is to make energy that doesn't involve setting carbon on fire. So the, the living a decent life with less energy means sort of smarter economic growth. It means uh, energy efficient buildings and transportation and uh, food production and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, the making energy without carbon 
obviously, we know how to do that. In fact, the cheapest forms of energy that we have are all carbon-free. Um, but the uh, the legacy, you know, sort of Victorian era uh, energy system is still with us. Again, steam engines and top hats. Uh, it, we're still digging up coal and setting it on fire. We're still digging up uh, gas and oil. Um, but sw switching over uh, to a um, non-fossil energy system, basically, again, two, two things. Uh, one is to clean up electricity, and the second thing is to make everything electric. So th this is uh, sort of counterintuitive, at least for people my age. We remember um, really crappy uh, apartments of our youth that were uh, baseboard electric heating that were just terrible, uh, super expensive, very inefficient. Um, but uh, the, the new world, the 21st century, um, everything is going to be electrical, which is kind of bizarre. Um, so, for example, I have a 100-year-old house here in Fort Collins, and I... Um, I remodeled it about four years ago, uh, insulated the crap out of it so that it's um, super tight and, uh, and holds its temperature. And um, I have a uh, uh, air source heat pump, which is basically an air conditioner that runs in reverse in the winter. So it takes heat out of the frozen winter air here in Colorado and pumps it into the house, uh, just, like a, just like a fridge. And um, that is all electric. And then I run the electric off of solar and I have a very, very low uh, energy, um, well, carbon footprint, certainly for my house. Uh, I have an electric stove. A lot of people want to cook with gas, but it turns out induction ranges are um, at least as convenient and, and the temperature is at least as controllable as gas, but you don't have like indoor air pollution. You don't have carbon, you don't have natural gas. And it's just um, cool. You're using magnetic fields. <laughs> like, oh, it's, it's freaking awesome. Isn't that, it's amazing. You, you put a pot on the stove and you push a button and the pot gets hot and the stove doesn't. It's like magic. Um, magneto, you can, you know, you've got superpowers. Yeah, yeah. So, so then there's one more uh, interesting wrinkle here, which is that the, um, uh, the trouble with uh, an all-electric, all-carbon-free uh, energy system in the future is... Um, balancing supply and demand, right? So, so mm -hmm. the sources of renewable power are not necessarily where the people are, you know, like wind mm -hmm. is mostly in the ocean and uh, solar is mostly in the desert, but neither of those places are where most of the people live. So you have to get the power from where it is to where the people want it. Uh, and you have to do it when they want it, right? So daytime is when the sun is up, but nighttime is when people turn the lights on and so forth. So some, some combination of transmission and storage has to be uh, in there in the mix. And um, so people have worked all this out. Uh, the, the engineering of it is not even all that hard. I mean, yes, it's a 21st century problem, but it's, it's, it's hard like cell phones were hard. It's hard like the internet was hard. Um, it, it's not hard, like impossible. Uh, it, it, it's estimated that completely replacing uh, fossil fuels with this sort of 21st century energy system of the future will cost us somewhere between what we spend every year on cell phones and uh, the amount that we spend every year on cars. It, it, it's not um, cripplingly expensive. It, it, it's the level of spending that we already do um, it's just redirecting the, the spending that we have. Um, so this is totally a solvable problem uh, as long as we and our children uh, don't just stop 
doing new things, right? Uh, my, my grandparents' generation um, did indoor plumbing and rural electrification and fought the Nazis, and my parents' generation did the uh, the, the uh, interstate highway system and uh, the space program and the Cold War, and my generation did, you know, computers and cell phones and the internet, um, and the next generation has to replace the energy system. And it's, it's not harder than any of those things. It's not more expensive than any of those things. It, it's right about the level of like indoor plumbing, right? So yeah. yes, uh, you will have to replace the energy system, but no, uh, not only will that not crush the economy, Failing to do it will crush the economy. You have to do this. So that's it. That's my spiel. Simple, serious, solvable. Uh, how it works, why it's bad, what are you going to do about it? I always liked your point about that, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, a whole new energy system was created and a lot of wealth was generated, you know, in that process. Absolutely. And that we kind of have this opportunity to do it again. We can have uh, another, you know, large scale revolution that it can and should generate like a lot of wealth. Like it, it's, it doesn't have to be living in caves, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, pulling absolutely. out of activity necessarily. In fact, uh, if you look at history through sort of a technological progress lens, um, every generation since the Renaissance has done this. I mean, this, this is how, this is almost the definition of modernity. Since about 1500, um, people have uh, consistently invented new ways of doing things that were phenomenally expensive, that um, basically replaced technologies that were working okay. Uh, you, you know, like cars are way more expensive than horses. Um, <laughs> plumbing your building is way more expensive than peeing into a bucket and dumping it out the window. Um, but, but they're better, right? They're, they're just flat out better ways of living and the spending all that money, every dollar somebody spends on plumbing is somebody's income, right? And then that money gets spent over and over and over again in the economy, right? So the plumber uh, puts in your pipes or, or, you know, does the welding and, uh, and, and then they go home with that money and they spend it on groceries or they spend it on their house or they spend it on their kids. And uh, this is basically why the modern world is different from the Middle Ages. Uh, welcome to, you know, the modern world. I, I just don't, I can't imagine why people think that after 500 years of that, we're just going to stop and freeze technology the way it was 30 years ago and never change. It's it's just absurd. Nobody's going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very easy for me to get you know excited about the arguments you're making, and to I I certainly have found myself again. I'm not an economist. I'm not you know I'm I'm a physical scientist. So that's really the only part of the system that I feel like I have any level of you know understanding in in detail about like you know where do the mud waters form and the, okay i can talk about that but putting all that aside you know kind of noting that um i it's, it's i tend to be very kind of positive and optimistic and saying like we, yeah we can do this this is possible and so it's i get kind of confused and i get kind of maybe not confused but i get kind of frustrated um when i see roadblock after roadblock after roadblock you know, being thrown up in the way of this seemingly um, this progress that you're talking about, you know, this direction that things need to go in, you know, there are 
large, powerful interest with lots of money who don't want things to change. There are various people who are, you know, there's various manifestations of people being afraid to change and afraid to move into new social systems and new economic uh, arrangements and energy systems. And that's, I mean, on some level, that's understandable. What do you think some of the biggest uh, roadblocks are? Where are some of the, the sticking points? Where are some of the, you know, these obstacles that we're running into? Well, and, so there's, there's sort of two kinds of obstacles. On the one hand, they're sort of um, physical or, you know, natural science obstacles. Um, and on the other hand, there are sort of psychological or social uh, obstacles. And I think... Um, the latter are the are the more difficult. Um, yeah. Frankly, it's a it's a socio political problem, not a science and technology or uh, economic and finance problem. Um, I, I think that the engineering and uh, finance side of it is entirely tractable, um, but the biggest problem is that, uh, as you said, there are very very powerful. Uh, economic and political um, forces trying to prevent uh, these, these changes from happening, which in my view um, is self-destructive and very short-sighted. Uh, and, and also, um, you know, besides the fact that we live in a modern world that's high tech, we, we live in a modern world that's, um, socially high tech that that through uh, s sort of careful um, manipulation of public opinion and advertising and propaganda um, these powerful interests are able to do things that that maybe they wouldn't have been able to 100 years ago I mean mm -hmm. if, if we had had this kind of uh, social environment 200 years ago we, we might never have gotten to um, electricity and mass transit and uh, and indoor plumbing. I mean, if, if there was a vested interest in uh, chamber pots and outhouses, uh, the way there is in, in uh, the, the modern uh, vestiges of that era, which is coal, oil, and gas, uh, imagine where, where we would be today. So um, I, I think what, one of the most effective things that I see is that, um, is that a lot of people uh, across the political spectrum are convinced that the, uh, that the solution to climate change is self-sacrifice is, um, you, you know, everybody's got to, uh, the, the bumper sticker is live simply that others may simply live. Right. Or, um, the idea that we're going to solve this by, uh, by, shivering in the cold and dark, right? By wearing sweaters in the winter and uh, turning off the light when we leave the room. I mean, those are all good things, riding my bike to work, um, telecommuting, God knows we know how to do that now. Um, nice course. The, the trouble is that uh, the vast majority of humanity doesn't live like we do. And in fact, uh, that's one of the things about Semester at Sea is to spend time in countries where um, the average carbon footprint is perhaps a tenth of, of what an American's is um, and, and realizing that, uh, that that's, to, to a first order of approximation, that's everyone. Everyone on earth lives like that, right? Everyone on earth, except for a small percentage, which is us, uh, 
is desperately poor and mm. needs more, not less. Uh, so you have to figure out a way to get through the next century when instead of 1 billion people living like us, it's like four or 5 billion people living like us. Um, and if that happens on the back of coal, oil and gas, uh, then it's kind of the end of the world. Um, we, we have to not have that. And in order to facilitate that, um, we don't, it, it's not enough for the 1 billion of us that are privileged to be a little less privileged. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have to do is make it possible for billions and billions of people to come up out of abject poverty uh, using clean energy. And it, it's, it's not, I mean, I think what you said was it's feasible or it's doable, and I agree with that, but it's more than that. It's, it's required. Mm. It, it's absolutely mandatory. Um, it's mandatory in a sense like, you know, in the 1930s, it was mandatory to stand up to the Nazis. Um, we, we, we didn't want to. Uh, we didn't um, jump at the chance. Uh, we, we put it off and we dragged our feet, uh, but it got worse and worse and worse until finally the, the uh, Western democracies had to, um, had to dig deep and do the hard thing and save the world. And we're, we're getting to that point again where we're going to have to um, dig deep, even though we don't want to, and, and do the right thing. Oceanographer uh, Joellen Russell, I talked to her on this podcast, and uh, she was quoting Walter Monk as uh, saying, basically telling the story that you just told and saying, you know, hold the line like it's your job now, you know, as the current people, you know, in charge and the, and, and also talking to younger people coming up, yeah. like, okay, hold, hold the line. This is something that has to be dealt with and it can be dealt with, uh, you know, in principle, if everybody's doing something. I did want to go back to, I heard the, I heard a, a really interesting and kind of provocative suggestion, or I, I read it online somewhere that like that whole message about like, uh, oh, cons consume less and spend less, that it's possible for, let's say, big powerful interests to really push that message and to kind of almost hide behind that a little bit, kind of to say, oh, yeah, it's definitely all of you consumers out there. It's definitely y'all's problem. It's not something that, that we need to do. If you all take action, then that's how we'll solve this thing. And I thought that was a provocative suggestion and a provocative idea. Um, you know, I don't know how far down that territory that we, we, we want to go as two scientists talking about it, but you, I guess you kind of, uh, you know, alluded to, uh, alluded to that just having everybody consume less, that's not really the end of the story. You know, that's not. You know, the, I, yeah. I, I will buy that um, there are over consumers in the world. Sure. I mean, there, there's no, no denying that. Um, and that, quite a lot of consumption is unnecessary is in, and uh, frivolous. But I, I think that you're absolutely right that, um, that there's a sort of uh, nefarious uh, subtext there that, that um, we don't have to stop uh, doing what we're doing as long as we sort of feel guilty about it and ashamed about it. And that's just a bunch of hooey. I mean, that, that will yeah. not help. Uh, yeah. As I said um, in, in my three S's, uh, the solution is to stop setting stuff on fire. Yeah. It's not necessarily to go live in a cave. 
Um, yeah. Sure, if you lived in a cave and only burned, you know, wood that was created from CO2, uh, you, you would have a smaller carbon footprint, but you don't have to live in a cave to have a small carbon footprint. Uh, I lived in France for a year. Uh, the average French person has one third of the carbon footprint of the average American, and they're not living in caves. Uh, yeah. they're, they're just fine in the 21st century. Um, but they, they, they make their electricity from nuclear power and they uh, use electricity to, to run their transportation system to a large degree. And um, wow, what a difference that makes. Like that's way bigger of a difference than if I were to, you know, turn my heat down to 50 degrees in the winter and, uh, and uh, use candles. It, it, it's a huge change. And the kind of change we need is sort of a 100% level change. You know, the first order, we need to completely eliminate uh, combustion. And um, you're not going to do that by, by living a frugal life, uh, especially when you've got billions and billions of people that are just joining the party, just moving in to the modern world. And uh, you have to provide some sort of alternative to combustion um, or it's, it's lights out. I mean, uh, it, it isn't just desirable to do this. It's mandatory. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, um, uh, that was really good, by the way. Thank you for all that. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> um, one of the things that, I read on your website and also I'm kind of aware that you do this sort of thing, but I like how you phrased it on your website that you take special delight in jumping into a hostile audiences. Is that, is that still the case? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I, I love having this conversation with people. Um, you, you know, preaching to the converted is fun, but um, really uh, standing up in front of a, a group of people who, um, are convinced of the opposite, right? Can, can, they, there are all these um, misconceptions that I love to uh, to bust, right? So, so for example, uh, on on simple, the idea that um, you know, first we discovered that it's warming, and then we discovered that it's correlated with CO two. Well, that's just hooey. You know, almost everybody thinks that, but it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, then, then uh, on the serious side, the idea that well you know, cutting emissions is a solution, but bullshit. Yeah, you know, what you, you, you have to eliminate emissions, right? C cutting emissions is not enough. Um, and then on the solvable side, the idea that, uh, that this is like impossible or that, that consumption, re reducing consumption is gonna solve your problem. No, you have to stop setting shit on fire. So, so uh, in every case, I try to be a little provocative. I try to sort of lay out the, um, yeah, I know you all think this, but it's wrong. Uh, and then um, I, uh, I actually very much have enjoyed visiting um, hostile audiences. I, sometimes it doesn't go so well, but most of the time it does. Uh, I've visited, um, you know, big conferences, science denier conferences. Um, I do uh, groups. Of I, imagine they don't, I imagine but, they don't build, them, build themselves as that. <laughs> No, but you know, the Heartland Institute, their, their sort of uh, primary reason of being is the uh, uh, propaganda that uh, says there's no global warming. Um, and, you know, I've been to this conference three times and there's hundreds of people in the room and I'm the only person in the whole room that uh, believes that climate change is a thing. Um, and so that, that kind of audience is, um, is sort of energizing and... Uh, and uh, invigorating. Um, 
I do conservative churches, I do farmer and rancher groups, um, Republican Party, uh, Rotary, International, things like that. Um, I went to a, uh, a thing in Sweden that was organized by uh, oh, people trying to have a dialogue between uh, climate scientists and, and uh, so-called skeptics. Um, I got into a sort of uh, heated argument in, in um, a university in China uh, where students were telling me it was a bunch of hooey. I couldn't believe it. Students never say that, but yeah, <laughs> I love doing it. It's great. What do you think it is about that environment? Because I guess for a lot of people, that's their worst nightmare. You know, they wouldn't want to be in a, in a hostile situation like that, but there's, for some reason you embrace it. It's well, exciting for you. It charges you. Or, I, yeah. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, it's um, it's more productive uh, if I can go into an environment where uh, there are um, out of 600 people, 50 of them could be persuaded. Uh, I've done a better thing mm. for the world than if I go into a group of 500 people and they're already 100% on my side and, and I just reinforce their, their pre-existing opinion. Mm. Um, so I... Uh, I tell jokes, I'm self-deprecating, I jump around on the stage, I make a fool of myself, but um, I, I speak in plain language that people can understand, and um, I hope that it's persuasive to, to a small minority of that very large group of people. Um, and then I feel like I've done more to move the needle than if I just continue to sort of speak to the Sierra Club or uh, you know, yeah. um, do, do you reach out to these organizations? Are, are you going, do you reach out to these organizations? Are you seeking degree, this out? To some degree, you know, in, in some ways, just doing it, uh, your name gets around as somebody who's willing to do it. Um, mm. I have been invited repeatedly to, uh, to the Heartland Institute. They invite me almost every year. Um, they, uh, my, my, I put it on my, uh, like you said, my website, my, my CV or my bio, whatever, that I like to engage hostile audiences on climate change and people see that. Uh, and so they invite me. Um, I, I did uh, a debate last spring uh, or not last fall with uh, um, at the uh, American Weather Society, so what is it? Weather Association. National Weather Association, that's it, NWA, um, to, with John Christie on, uh, to talk to uh, so-called skeptical TV weather forecasters about this. I mean, I'll, I'll do it pretty much any time I get asked if it's, if it's doable. I mean, I, yeah. I'm getting towards retirement. I can't, uh, I, I, they have to pay my travel. I yeah. can't do it on my own. No, right. So that's given you a lot of practice at, you know, honing that message. You've gone out and you've, you've seen what works. You've seen what doesn't work. Yeah. You know, you've seen what maybe connects better. Uh, and it's like this, yeah, it's this thing that you've gone out and honed. It's like, uh, it's not, a, it's not an act, but I, there, there's a, when I say act, you know, comedians talk about going out and doing their act, you know, you've, right. you've honed this thing, this communication device, this communication vehicle. Without a doubt. I mean, to some yeah. degree it's performance art. I have to, I have to admit that. Uh, but, but you know, all of academics do that to some degree, right? We, yeah. we yeah. give a talk and we get better at it. 
Uh, we teach a class and we get better at it. Yeah. Um, I've done the climate change presentation at least 300 times. I tried to mm. add them up. I, last year I did it more than 50 times. So that's on the average of more than once a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so, yeah, I'm good at it. I have good slides. Uh, I have good uh, sort of demo things that I, I have an infrared camera that I sometimes use um, to show heat emissions and absorption. Uh, yeah. I got a bunch of little sort of parlor tricks that I use. People love it. P people are literally entertained by my climate change presentation. People, people eat it up. Yeah. So it sounds like there's already lots of kind of implied nuggets of wisdom in what you've said already. But if somebody's listening and uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and if somebody's listening and they want to get involved more with outreach, because um, so our, audience for this show a lot of them are students a lot of them are already researchers thinking about getting into research uh, we do have some you know members of the public who are audi audience members as well but there might be people listening who are kind of curious as to what kind of public outreach things can they do yeah. would you say more to somebody who like if somebody asked you what more could I do to get involved with this kind of public engagement and yeah well let me because you said a lot of your audience is students uh, and young scientists I, I think um, I'm gonna start with a caveat which is uh, maybe a little dangerous right so um, but let me say it's not for everybody right not mm. not everybody who is uh, a scientist necessarily ought to do this kind of work um, I would say to students and to sort of postdocs or assistant professors that um, it doesn't take the place of your regular work. This is like a hobby, right? This is something you do yeah. on the side, like uh, like fishing. Um, you 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 can't think of this as uh, fulfilling a, a spot on your CV. Um, you still have to do your research, you have to do good research, you have to write papers, you have to publish those papers, you have to teach your classes, you have to do it well, all that stuff, right? Given all of that, um, I think that there's a tremendous need for good science communication. And, and actually, um, people who are good at communication uh, tend to sort of uh, I don't know, be drawn to it. it it's, it's very gratifying um, to, to uh, like, look at you, you're doing this podcast, right? Obviously you have an interest in, in this communication work. Um, I think that there is a huge spectrum of, uh, of need and opportunity in science communication. Uh, everything from um, almost, 100% on the academic and research side, writing better papers. For God's sakes, try oh, to man. say things in plain in plain language without yes. uh, over convoluting your sentences and and using uh, jargon that isn't necessary and trying to appear smarter than other people. That that's just terrible. Active and, voice. Active voice. Yeah, please. That's my, that's my two cents. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you can, write, you can write better journal articles. Uh, and, and if you do just that, you know, you've done something for science communication. Uh, on uh, the other end of the spectrum, you know, you can become a, a grade school teacher. Um, but, but there's an awful big middle ground be between those things. Um, there's almost uh, anywhere there's a university, there's usually some sort of outreach um, office or extension or, um, you know, formal organization that you can partner with. 
Uh, he, here in the States, um, in almost every state, maybe it is even every state, there is something called the Agricultural Extension Service, which is usually outreach to farmers, but it's, it's, it's usually the public as well. Um, I've done a ton of work with um, high school science teachers. Uh, I've run courses for high school science teachers for about 15 years now in the yeah. summer uh, where I teach them about climate change uh, in a way that's, um, that's easy to grasp, that involves lots of hands-on in-class activities to do with their students, that's mapped one-to-one uh, -one with their, um, their requirements from the state on what stuff that they have to teach. Uh, I do videos, I do, you know, public presentations. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity, but uh, again, to return to the caveats, it, not everybody's good at it, right? Mm. So, so there are people that are sort of better at the highly technical work than they are at, at public outreach. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's uh, okay. It is totally okay. Um, there's also some level of... Uh, sort of two kinds of um, danger that I, I would warn people about. One is just time. Uh, your time is precious. And you must, must, must do your research and publish your papers and move your career along. Uh, and if, if uh, you spend all your time on that and you don't have time to do public outreach on climate change, that's okay. That, that's your job. You know, mm. get, get that done first. Yeah. Um, the other kind of danger is a little weirder um, and it's sort of a uh, reputational danger, right? You have to be careful that you uh, keep your, your honesty and your integrity as a scientist. Um, you can't s sort of go off the edge into uh, political advocacy to the point that you're now no longer a credible uh, scientist in, in your own field. And so that's kind of a subjective thing. Mm. But anyway, um, I hope that lots of young people uh, wind up doing science outreach. Um, I mean, think think about uh, you're too young, but Carl Sagan when I was when I was young uh, changed my life, right? Watching watching those shows and reading those books and uh, uh, Nova and National Geographic and all that kind of stuff, right? We we get. Um, we get recruited as scientists by good science outreach and uh, sort of um, high school level uh, engagement with, with the public, especially with younger people. Yeah. Um, uh I got I got exposed to to Carl Sagan as a, as a kid. Did you? It, maybe, it maybe wasn't um, the first showing, but you know, maybe it was a rerun or something. Yeah, he, yeah, they show it again, and then there's yeah. more people who haven't seen it. And it's and, amazing. I mean, you should watch it if you haven't seen Cosmos. You have to go back and watch. I mean, there's a new one right now, right? That's yeah. that's uh, um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. So so yeah. you should watch it now. Um, but but when you're done with that, go back and find the old Cosmos on uh, DVD or on Netflix or whatever. Yeah. And actually, the movie Contact made a big oh, impact on me as a kid. Fantastic. And yeah. And it, I, I don't know why I had this particular thought, but when we got home, uh, I expressed this to my parents. Like, the thing that struck me the most about that movie was I said, it's also, it's possible. Like, they had just arranged everything such that, you know, they weren't saying this is going to happen or has happened. Right. But it was all logical and all just like, Here's a possibility. And I don't know why the possi possibility of it struck me and just, you know, resonated with me. Um, 
That's great. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I, I like to, yeah, the, when, when you see those possibilities, that's very exciting. Well, even um, Carl Sagan got into trouble uh, academically over his uh, his science outreach and his celebrity. Oh, really? Um, yeah. You, I mean, by the time he became a famous outreach guy, he already was a, a senior professor. Um, but he certainly uh, went without a whole bunch of uh, professional recognition later in his career because he was perceived as having uh, left the research world and, and become just a TV celebrity. Um, so, you know, you, can't, you definitely can't do that as a postdoc. You, you, you must write your papers. You must get your work done uh, before you become uh, an outreach Character. I guess one thing that's different, I guess the danger of becoming a big TV celebrity is pretty low. Yeah, right. Days, so. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah, I think the, the whole media landscape is so fragmented and broken okay. up into small I, bits I everywhere. I didn't mean to suggest you know. that, uh, that I was going to become the next Carl Sagan, though. <laughs> no, no. No, I wasn't saying that. But just the idea that, you know, one might be able to, you know, do your, your outreach and do your bit. Uh, and it it's okay if it's not the biggest splashiest thing you know you might just find a little niche audience yeah. um, this is sort of I'm basically just trying to justify the podcast right now because that's kind of <laughs> what I've done, is I've, <laughs> I've found my little crew I think and it's not a huge audience but it's my audience and I like that and I like that's and, great and it's uh, I'm happy about about that arrangement um, so how you doing you doing all right yeah great yeah. thanks yeah. it's fun yeah Cool. Oh yeah, I, I love it. I have a lot of fun. I'm glad you're enjoying it as well, because uh, we hadn't even talked about like your pathway. You know, normally kind of the second hour. Um, there's not a strict timetable, but this is often how these things flow. Second hour, we kind of talk about you know pathway into science, what that looked sure. like, and we can talk about some of the science you're involved with now. Sure. And uh, yeah, so where where did you uh, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in the northeast part of the United States, uh, New York State and uh, New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents moved around a lot when I was a kid, so I s- sort of wasn't in one place the whole time. Right. Um, and I was big into science. I think my introduction to science was in first grade uh, when they taught about the planets. Mm-hmm. And I was just captivated by the idea that there are these other worlds out there. Yeah. Um, and so by the time I was, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12, I uh, was really into astronomy and science fiction and uh, got a telescope when I was a kid and um, backyard, you know, looking at the moon and Saturn and Jupiter. And um, it's sort of wanted to be an astronomer when I grew up. Uh, when I finally went to college, I was, um, I went into my uh, advisor and said, I want to be an astronomer. And he said, well, you, we don't have that, right? You, you, you can't uh, be an astronomy major as an undergrad. You, you could be mm-hmm. a physics major right. and then go to grad school in astronomy. But of course, at that age, I wasn't really thinking about grad school. Um, so uh, in the summer of my freshman year in college, I went on a road trip and I went hiking in the Grand Canyon. And uh, then I became captivated by geology. I was like, oh, oh, rocks and layers and time and deep time. And um, so I came back uh, after my first summer in college and um, switched my major to geology. Mm. And 
Uh, I became a geologist. Um, I graduated in uh, 1984, and I uh, went and worked in the oil industry for a while. Um, and uh, I go ahead. What were you up to? That I seem to remember you mentioning being sent to really remote. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. I I, um, I worked for a company out of Denver, an oil and gas company, um, doing uh, it's called mud logging, where you they basically right straight out of undergrad uh, geologists are stuck out on oil wells during the drilling process to live in a trailer. Um, so my my wells were almost all in uh, Western North Dakota, the Williston Basin, which is still a big oil and gas area. Um, and uh, you put 12 hours in uh, and 12 off, um, going out on the rig every 10 feet and scooping up the drill cuttings and bringing them back in the trailer and looking at them in a microscope and describing the rocks that you were drilling through and measuring uh, dissolved gases in the drilling fluid. Um, I mean, it was brutal. Uh, I, I would work, uh, you know, seven days a week, 12 on 12 off uh, for the duration of a well. So that might be like anywhere from two weeks to eight weeks. Um, and uh, the middle of truly the middle of nowhere in, in Western North Dakota, Eastern Montana, uh, deadly bitter cold, 30 below kind of cold in the wintertime and uh, working at night, uh, you know, night shift, because I was the new guy, uh, clambering around on this metal rig in my giant, you know, moon suit to stay alive. Um, yeah, that was brutal. But uh, luckily for me, the oil industry collapsed in 1985 uh, because the price of oil went went down. I was just imagining um, that uh, the department probably doesn't put that on their brochure. No. Recruiting. I don't imagine they do. Um the collapse, the, the the oil industry collapsed in the 80s. Yeah, and I lost my job. Everybody lost their jobs in 1985. Uh, and then I delivered pizzas for a while. And I, uh, oh, I did all sorts of crappy little jobs for a while. And then I, I got a job um, at Colorado State University uh, working on a National Park Service project in 1986, um, doing uh, acid rain research in Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, and that was wonderful. And for uh, almost five years, I, um, I went up into Rocky Mountain National Park every Tuesday um, and collected uh, rain and snow and then uh, lake samples and stream samples and uh, brought them back to CSU and did analysis and tried to figure out the chemistry of the precipitation and how it changed as the... Uh, water moved through the watershed and uh, interacted with the biology along the way. Um, and I really got uh, turned on by, by doing research. Um, and it became painfully obvious over that period that I would never be able to do it, uh, except you know, I was basically a, a field assistant, right? I was just the, the guy with strong legs who could hike up into the high mountains and collect the water. Um, so I had to go to grad school and I learned about the atmospheric science program at CSU and I started taking classes as a sort of employee benefit um, uh, and uh, eventually quit, quit my job and became a full-time grad student um, with nice. Dave Randall. And, 
And uh, so I stayed until I got my PhD in 1994 um, with, so, with Dave. Somehow I had missed it. I had missed the, so Dave was your, was your advisor. Was my PhD, PhD advisor. advisor. Yeah. Okay, right. And um, so my research, uh, PhD research was on atmospheric transport of CO2 and sources and sinks of CO2 at the surface, which is photosynthesis and respiration primarily. Um, and I had this background in geology and biology and geochemistry, so I, I was sort of well-suited for that. And then I picked up all the atmospheric science, fluid dynamics, numerical modeling stuff at, in grad school. Uh -huh. And then I had a, a really quite a successful career. Um, first, uh, as an assistant professor at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, and then um, in 1998, I came back to CSU as an assistant professor uh, in the department where I got my PhD. Um, and my, my research has primarily been involved with, uh, with the missing carbon. So about half of the CO2 from fossil fuels winds up in the atmosphere and the other half doesn't. And um, my job for my whole adult life has been to figure out where the other half went and how it got there and whether there's anything we can do to make it go there faster and when is it gonna come back out and bite us in the butt. So I primarily do um, passive tracer transport modeling in the atmosphere, um, sort of postulate a bunch of sources and sinks of CO2 at the surface, both the ocean and the land, um, carry it around as an advective gas in the air uh, in, in a model and then compare in gory numerical detail the resulting four-dimensional distribution of CO2 to observations, and then uh, go back and uh, you know tweak the uh, source sink model to uh, account for the differences between the postulated source sink and the and the observations of uh, of CO2. Have you used any uh, inverse type approaches? Yeah, yeah, for that? that's pretty no. much what that's called, right? So yeah. I. I so inverse modeling of atmospheric CO2, uh, and in particular, trying to understand the uh, biogeochemistry of, of carbon. Um, and my specialties on land, um, of course, you know, most of the world is ocean, so we have, to, uh, we have to model that as well. But I typically just use somebody else's uh, model output for ocean mm -hmm. uh, CO2 uh, air-sea gas exchange. So we use either... Um, uh, NOAA surface observations that have been uh, massively interpolated um, as, a, as an ocean um, source sink boundary condition or the output of, of somebody's ocean model like Scott Doney's model that uh, uh, used to be at Woods Hole. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, in terms of recent projects like are there, what are you involved with kind of now? Like what are some of the challenges you're tackling at the moment? Yeah, well, the main thing that, uh, that I'm still working on is um, atmospheric carbon transport in the atmosphere uh, due to synoptic weather processes. So that's uh, part of a gigantic field experiment that is led by Ken Davis at Penn State. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the quickie version of this is that um, they fly airplanes through synoptic weather systems uh, at different times of year in different parts of, of North America and measure the heck out of uh, different trace gases, carbon trace gases in the atmosphere uh, to try to understand how they move. Um, and, and then let me give you sort of the, 
the more science communication version of that, which is that um, there's this tremendous seasonal cycle of CO2. Most people have seen, you know, the Mauna Loa curve that goes up and down, um, up in the winter and down in the summer. And that's photosynthesis and, and respiration. But uh, at, at the continental scale, it's actually um, about 10 times that, that much uh, variation. And most of that is weather. So, um, for example, in the summertime, there's this tremendous drawdown of CO2 at, say, 60 north, because that's where all the land is, and it's, uh, it's light up there um, in the summertime. So there's lower CO2 at the latitude of Siberia and Canada than there is down at the latitude of, say, Florida and uh, Saudi Arabia. And, um, and then uh, baroclinic waves come through in the atmosphere, and some of that uh, low CO2 air gets sort of injected down into the subtropics, and some of that higher CO2 air gets sort of injected back up into the boreal uh, zone. And along the boundaries, the fronts be between those two air masses, um, there is all kinds of very interesting transport. Um, there are thunderstorms, there are uh, strong wind shifts, the kind of wind shifts that I felt on the ship when we, yeah. when we crossed from the trades into the westerlies. Uh, and those things typically are associated with CO2 gradients that are 10 times as strong as the difference between the North Pole and the South Pole. Uh, and so in the inverse modeling world, we think of that as information, right? There's this tremendous amount of information in the CO2 jump across uh, a cold front. And if you can model uh, pr deterministically the sort of three-dimensional transport around the low pressure system and the way that the, uh, the, the biologically influenced air is sort of pushed around by those, by those weather systems, uh, you can infer a tremendous amount about the upstream biogeochemistry for thousands and thousands of kilometers. So um, it's been one of the hardest things in, uh, in carbon cycle inverse modeling is to, just to try to deal with these very strong gradients in the vicinity of fronts. Uh, but on the other hand, it's one of the most uh, potentially um, rewarding breakthrough technologies because uh, that's where the information is. Um, ironically, for the very reason that, uh, that the air gets smushed together and, and twists the CO2 around the low pressure system, um, it, it also is cloudy there, right? The, the, the clouds um, are systematically organized around these boundaries in, in the whole world, and therefore the satellite CO2 systems can't see through them. <laughs> so the, uh, in some sense, our, our models are, uh, have been the only source of information about these uh, very, very interesting, very active um, fluid dynamical processes that, that contain all this biological information. Uh, but we've been blind to it because the satellites can't see it. Uh, so, so what this big field experiment is dedicated to doing is shining a light on this project product, uh, sorry, shining a light on this process by actually flying airplanes through fronts and around and around low pressure systems. Um, I have not been on the airplanes, but I understand that lots of people vomit. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> there, there's lots of uh, bad weather flying, flying research aircraft through, um, through bad weather. Um, but, but the measurements are just spectacular, uh, amazing um, variations in, in CO2. Uh, places where the CO2 drops, uh, drops more over 
you know, 20 miles uh, than say all the CO2 increase in the last 30 years uh, for fossil fuel. And uh, you can imagine that that's just a tremendous amount of information. If we could only work with it and understand it mechanistically, uh, we, we could work out um, sort of how the biosphere works at, at very large scales. Is this the uh, NASA ATOM plane? Is that one of the? No, that's that a different uh, different experiment. Uh, the, the, this is called um, ACT ACT, the uh, Atmospheric Carbon Transport okay. um, Mission, mm. and it's uh, it's led out of Penn State and um, NASA Langley in in uh, Virginia, um, and involves uh, both a high flying. Uh, jet and a lower flying um, research aircraft. So they'd sort of do one up at, I don't know, 400 millibars, 300 millibars, and then another one down uh, in the boundary layer. So you're sort of trying to measure uh, both the vertical structure within these big synoptic systems and also sort of horizontal gradients by flying in, in a pattern around the front. And they, they will visit the same uh, synoptic weather system um, two or three times uh, over a period of days. So sort of redeploying the aircraft uh, from, from the Midwest up through the Northeast um, as these systems develop and track across North America. Uh, and they've done um, two missions in the summer, two missions in the fall, two missions in the winter, and two missions in the spring over the period of five years. So tremendous amount of data. Nobody's ever... Uh, collected uh, synoptic scale um, observations like this of, of background uh, carbon tracers in the atmosphere. And it's always just been kind of a black hole. We, we just sort of ignore it because the observations don't go there, right? So, so there's yeah. basically, there's all this information, but, but nobody's looking. We're, we're all just flying blind. Uh, <laughs> so it's very exciting, actually. R really a cool project. So those flights, it sounds like they're trying to measure the fingerprints of the circulation of the physics on the carbon dioxide distribution and what does that look like? And that can have implications for, I guess, how the carbon is partitioned between the atmosphere and the ocean and the land because yeah. of the distribution. Well, that, that's right. No? The, the big picture is that, um, is that half of the CO2 doesn't wind up in the air. Yeah. Um, the, the part that goes into the ocean is actually, you know, I, I'm afraid to say this in front of an oceanographer, but it's pretty well understood. I mean, it's chemistry and physics, right? There's a, the uh, um, carbonate equilibria determine how much CO2 dissolves into surface water. And then the circulation of the ocean and the, ther the thermal stratification determine how quickly the surface water can mix with the deep water. Um, and all of that is very well constrained, for example, by bomb C-14 from the, the atomic weapons test back in the 60s. Uh, the overall um, rate of penetration of anthropogenic CO2 into the deep ocean uh, is very well constrained by, by measurements in the deep ocean. Um, the but on scale. the land, the whole idea that the land is taking up carbon uh, was very, very controversial. Uh, almost everybody thought that the land was a source of CO2 to the atmosphere um, because uh, photosynthesis is almost perfectly matched by, by de decomposition, right? Life and death are in very close balance over geologic time as they must be, hmm. uh, be because uh, if you just have more and more and more photosynthesis over time, eventually you have more and more and more dead stuff and therefore you have more and more respiration. So it, it balances itself out. 
Um, but in fact, there is more photosynthesis, uh, perhaps one or 2% more photosynthesis than there is death and decomposition. And this has been true since the beginning of good CO2 measurements in the 1950s. So we know for sure that the land is actually taking up carbon um, on the net over time. And that means that uh, for my entire lifetime, um, stuff has been growing faster than it's dying. Uh, and that has been a source of consternation among um, biologists and ecologists for decades. So for example, extra CO2 in the atmosphere fertilizes the plants and so they grow faster. Uh, extra reactive nitrogen in the atmosphere fertilizes the plants so they grow faster. Um, longer growing seasons in the far north uh, allow the plants to get bigger and store more carbon. And um, regrowth of, uh, of forests in places that used to be farms, for example, in uh, the eastern part of the United States or in the western part of Europe, um, also sequesters carbon. So it, it's certainly happening. Uh, but almost everybody who works in this field thinks that that terrestrial uptake of CO2 will eventually slow down and stop and maybe even reverse as um, ecosystems become disrupted by, by global warming and by changes in evapotranspiration. So, uh, or even worse by thawing permafrost in, in the far north. So yeah. if, uh, if that terrestrial sink of CO2 were to stop or even switch to becoming a terrestrial source, we would expect global warming to go much, much faster uh, and the CO2 to rise much, much faster. So uh, very important to try to understand the mechanisms of this. Um, when I was in grad school, I thought, you know, I was gonna be the guy to figure this out. Now I'm almost ready to retire, still haven't figured it out. So um, it's okay, there's plenty of work left for the next generation. Um, but, but one of the last frontiers in inverse modeling of this stuff has been uh, to try to understand the uh, 3D distribution of CO2 and other carbon gases in the vicinity of, of big weather. Um, and that's what this big uh, NASA experiment is all about. It's trying to fly airplanes through the big weather and figure out what the heck happened in there. That's really cool. That uh, contrast reminded me of something that Ted Shepard likes to say occasionally. He mentions that, well, climate projection and specifically regional climate projection is hard to do because although we're pretty good at thermodynamics, we're not very good at dynamics, relatively speaking. You know, we, we can keep track of energy pretty well, but you know, how that inter how that changes the circulation and how that circulation interacts with the other different parts of the components. Uh, so basically a big part of what you were working out was that physical, you know, circulation component and how it interacts with the carbon. Yeah. Well, so I got a, an interesting thing. If, if I don't know if your listeners um, do this kind of thing, but, but everybody's kind of probably seen uh, the Keeling curve, the fact that CO2 is increasing, but it has this seasonal cycle. Um, and and uh, so the Keeling curve, of course, is, is the top of Mauna Loa. It's Hawaii. It's 20 degrees north. Um, but the farther north you go, the stronger that seasonal cycle gets. Mm. And you might imagine, well, that makes sense because uh, there's more and more land the farther north you go. Uh, and the land is more and more seasonal the farther north you go, right? So like the, the seasonal cycle in Siberia is stronger than it is in, say, Florida. Um, but on the other hand, 
uh, it continues to get stronger if you keep going farther north. So up on the north slope of Alaska, it's stronger than it is in the south part of Alaska. Way the heck up in, in the deep Arctic, uh, uh, Baffin Island, you know, the, the northern tip of Greenland, the seasonal cycle of CO2 is stronger than it is down at 60 north. And so what the heck is going on with that? It's just rock and ice up there. And it's not the ocean. The ocean is covered with ice, you know, in the wintertime. And there's no source of CO2 up there. So how come the seasonal cycle of CO2 is stronger in the polar dark at 80 north than it is at, say, 50 north, where more land is and the land is more, uh, more productive? And it's all about these fronts. It's all yeah. about baroclinic waves in the atmosphere that pump uh, seasonal CO2 from the mid-latitudes and dump it up into the uh, polar night in the wintertime. And then conversely, take some of that seasonally depleted CO2 in the summertime and pump it up into the Arctic. So um, remarkable amount. I mean, uh, 100% of the seasonal cycle at, at Baffin Island is due to synoptic weather in the mid-latitudes. <laughs> And about 50% of our seasonal cycle of CO2 down here where everybody lives is, is vacuumed away uh, by synoptic weather, by baroclinic uh, waves, and put up where the sun don't shine. So we, we have this uh, really quite amazing interplay between uh, biogeochemistry, um, radiation, and geophysical fluid dynamics that uh, has profound effects on the seasonality of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, and which is um, just a goldmine of information about how the Earth's ecosystems are reacting to changes in climate, changes in nitrogen, changes in CO2, changes in land use. So it, it's, a, it's a fantastic problem, and I, I, I think this is the first time anybody has ever really dug into it uh, with observations. And um, I, I, you know, it would have been nice if we could have just solved the whole thing in five years uh, of a NASA mission. Uh, the mission is coming to an end. Uh, I fear that um, we will come to the end of this and say, well, we still don't understand it. But isn't that kind of the way science always works? Yeah. Is that you, you, you uh, mount these huge field experiments and then you have more questions than you did when you started. I mean, that'd be a heck of a deliverable. Like, yeah, we did it. We got it <laughs> sorted. You've given me some clues as to what your answer might be to this, but um, I hear the statement made a lot, and I've probably been guilty of making it myself. Um, how wrong is it to say, oh, well, CO2 is pretty well mixed in the atmosphere, so we'll just use the Mauna Loa uh, record as the, you know. It's actually quite close to being true. So, yeah? so okay. uh, you know, it is ironic that um, CO2 is well mixed in the atmosphere. And yet, to the extent that statement is not true, I have a career. So, um, you know, my, my career has been almost entirely uh, founded on trying to interpret very small variations on a background field, which is very uh, constant, uniform. The mixing time of the atmosphere, give or take, is a, is a year. If you burn a lump of coal in China, uh, in a year, uh, there's almost as much CO2 from that lump of coal in Antarctica as there is in China. Um, it's the e-folding time is a year. So it's, you know, maybe you need three years to have it be uh, virtually perfectly mixed. Um, 
The difference between CO2 at the North Pole and the South Pole is on the order of 1% of the background. So it's a pretty small difference, 4 ppm on a background of 400. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, um, the seasonal cycle might be 10 ppm uh, somewhere in the North Pacific. Uh, it, it might be um, 15 ppm up at Barrow, Alaska. Uh, and the differences from a warm sector to the cold sector of a synoptic weather system in the middle of the summer uh, might be 30 ppm or 40 ppm. So really, really large differences. And almost all of those big differences are biology. Uh, so uh, every year the photosynthesis um, sucks down about one seventh of all the CO2 in the atmosphere. So left to itself, uh, photosynthesis would eliminate all CO2 from the atmosphere in seven years. It'd be the end of the world. Thank God that's not all there is. Uh, <laughs> there's also death. So um, life depletes CO2 in seven years, but death replenishes it in seven years. So we have a balance of CO2 in the atmosphere. But the local uh, deviations from that uh, average are, are really very strong. Um, Another big project that Ken Davis led, and Ken has been one of my most important uh, collaborators and colleagues over the, my whole career. Uh, another big project he led in the field um, uh, about uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, was measuring uh, spatial gradients of CO2 across the Midwest, uh, the, the heartland of uh, the, the agricultural production in the United States. So, he put um, high precision, high accuracy CO2 instruments on cell phone towers uh, across um, in a ring around the US state of Iowa <laughs> and measured um, hour to hour changes of CO2 across that domain for three years and found that um, on a good summer afternoon, uh, the CO2 could be as low as 310 ppm in, in Iowa. Hmm. Um, now that's lower than it was in the 1950s. So uh, a cornfield can suck down um, pretty much the entire anthropogenic perturbation of CO2, um, but it's local, right? It's, it's, it's uh, 300 meters deep. Um, it, it's a few hundred kilometers across. Um, it, it's amazing photosynthesis. Uh, and over a year, 100% of that CO2 just comes right back out, right? Be between right, yeah. uh, silage, uh, cattle feed, um, people eating cheeseburgers, what, whatever. So th there's this very dynamic um, biology that goes on with CO2. And then that is uh, encapsulated, if you will, within the seasonally varying um, radiation environment, which drives photosynthesis. Uh, but that same seasonally varying radiation also drives uh, the seasonally changing circulation of the atmosphere. So jet streams and baroclinicity and, and waves in the atmosphere. So uh, amazing crosstalk between um, radiation, biology, and fluid dynamics that determine this thing. And it's been a privilege really for 30 years to, to work on, uh, on how this works and then to get... Um, sort of dream set of observations of, of this with this field experiment. Just fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember you talking about um, the, even the, the transport of water in some plants can be surprisingly fast. 
That's oh, the yeah. idea too, obviously, but we it's often too easy to think about plants as static things. Oh my right? god. So yeah. so um I I'm sorry, but I can't remember who said this. A famous um scientist in my field said that um plants are like straws stuck down into the into the ground for the uh, soil moisture to, to leak out into the atmosphere. Um so, so there's almost no evaporation from soil unless it's just sopping wet. You know. Mm-hmm. If it rained an hour ago, you can get some evaporation from the surface. But if there's no puddles, uh, there's virtually no uh, latent heat flux from soil. Uh, almost all of it comes through plants. Uh, and, and a huge amount of water comes out of plants every year into the atmosphere. Um, to, to a pretty good approximation, roots go down as far on the average as plants stick up out of the ground. So, uh, you know, blades of grass, not so much, um, but uh, big, big, you know, giant sequoia trees that are 100 meters tall uh, are sucking water from 100 meters deep. Hmm. And that means that water is climbing um, 200 meters, right, from, from the deep soil uh, out into the atmosphere. Yeah. And it's entirely uh, done through um, surface tension, through capillary tension uh, inside the, the plants. They have... Um, they have physiological structures that, that carry water um, against gravity. Uh, and, and so there's no pumping. There's no, there's no push at the bottom of a plant. There is only pull uh, at the top. So, so there's evaporation uh, from a, a free water surface inside the, the plant leaf or say pine needle. And then that water is connected all the way down, molecule by molecule, all the way into the deep soil. And uh, those columns of water move hundreds of, of meters. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, my wife is a plant physiologist, and she talks about um, being an undergrad field technician um, a long time ago and uh, walking through a cornfield in the middle of summer and hearing the uh, the columns of water break in the in the corn plants as you walk through uh, a field of corn on a hot July afternoon. Uh, you sometimes hear this kind of popcorn sound, and it's actually um, uh, the breakage of these capillary tubes uh, of water. If the water is being sucked out the top faster than the capillary tension can carry that water up through the plant, um, it will break. And that's actually sort of devastating physiologically for the plants. Mm. Uh, Another thing she talks about is um, in a condition like that, uh, summer cornfield, um, whacking a corn stalk with a machete and seeing water actually squirt out of the top of the cut um, stem of the corn stalk uh, under its own momentum. It's moving so quickly up uh, through the plant that, that if you cut it off, it just sort of squirts out the top. So there, yeah. there's just an amazing uh, yeah. world, uh, a living world, um, of which, of course, we are a part. So that's kind of cool. Absolutely, yeah. I was also just thinking you'd get a weird look from the farmer if you didn't, if you hadn't explained yeah, you know, yeah. what your plans were, like you know, experimental you know, farms, you know. hacking. So um, we can talk for as long or as short as we like. So this doesn't have to be the end, but I like to near the end ask some questions about what you've learned in various arenas. Sure. So the First question, what's something that you learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with it? Well, you know, science is fun. 
Uh, it just is. And I, I, I wouldn't say that's something I learned because it's, I mean, I learned it in first grade. When, when my teacher told me about Saturn and, uh, and the moon and stuff, I, I was just captivated as a six-year-old. Um, so I kind of already knew it was fun, but boy, howdy, it's fun. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, other than that, uh, as a grown-up, I learned that, um, that like every other uh, highly organized part of society, science is full of business and politics. Uh, there's all sorts of, um, of machinations that go on. You, you have to write proposals and annual reports and uh, hire and fire people and mm. supervise them and sort of uh, plan out projects and carry them out and there's a lot of administrative work that isn't so much fun. Uh, the science is fun. The administrative stuff is, uh, is something I'm not nearly as good at as I am at the, uh, the fun stuff. Um, so there, there's sort of the, the, the basic discovery creative part of it that's just fabulous. Uh, there's the, I think of it as administrative overhead that, uh, is, is much less fun for me. It's, it's paper pushing, it's, uh, it, it's logistics, it's, um, it's keeping track of money, all that kind of stuff. Very, uh, time consuming. Actually, that's certainly something I learned is that, uh, at least half of the effort goes into that stuff, maybe more. Um, and then, uh, on the other hand, um, the importance of, Communication, uh, oral communication, written communication. Um, we are we are communicators for a living, right? Uh, y- yes, we have this technical uh, requirement. Uh, we have to have a very high level of education, a very high level of of technical skill building and practice. Um, you know, we're software engineers, we're mathematicians, we're data analysts, we're computer graphics people, we, we do all this techie stuff. Um, but the people who are good at, who are, who are good to great, you know, great is kind of one of those words, I shouldn't use it, but the, the people sort of in the top third of our field uh, get there not through their technical expertise, which is necessary but not sufficient, but rather through their communications expertise, mm-hmm. through their ability to um, to explain their ideas in a compelling way so that somebody wants to support them, their ability to explain their research to their students, to mentor, to bring people along in their excitement for their discoveries, uh, to, to write about their work in compelling ways in journal articles that people actually want to read, that people will then build on that research. So the, the importance of communication, um, you, you know, sort of the mirror image of what I said earlier about uh, opportunities, professional opportunities and outreach. Not everybody in science is, is cut out or, or even has any desire to do science outreach, but uh, r- really highly technically skilled people uh, will always have a, a sort of backroom uh, role if they aren't also great communicators. And, and you have to be able to explain why people should care about your research, 
what makes it interesting, uh, what, what you've found, um, why it's important, how that leads to the next question, all that kind of stuff is, is actually stuff that um, you learn more in an English class than, than in a uh, geophysical fluid dynamics class. And uh, it's been my experience that um, some of my very best students over the years uh, came from non-technical fields. Uh, the, the, uh, the very best students are the ones that can speak and can write and can uh, converse about the research. Kind of amazing. I mean, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. These are, these are sort of um, true in all fields that um, engaging, explaining, putting your head around things and being able to communicate it with other people, uh, certainly very, very important to what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you do your work and your research in a total vacuum and don't connect with anybody, it's nobody cares. Of- kind of its own little island, right? It's kind of its own little little thing. And science is a social activity. You know, it's yeah. a, a thing that humans are doing. And so to like participate in it, you need a way in. You need a way to participate with that set of people who are, do, who are doing it, who are communicating. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, b- both the fun communications part of it and also the less fun business aspect uh, are are sort of corollaries of that, right? The fact that science is a, is a social human exercise, uh, enterprise uh, means we have to raise money and we have to hire and fire and we have to, you know, give promotions and blah, 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 write reports. Uh, but it also means we, we get to go give talks and, uh, and teach students and wow. Yeah. So there's good fun stuff too. How about, uh, what's something you learned about leadership where, I don't want to be super prescriptive about what leadership means, but... I like um, I like Brene Brown's definition of it being like it's about seeing potential in people. It's about seeing potential in processes and kind of becoming a champion for those processes when there's you don't know if it's going to work out or not. Like you don't know if that person or process is going to work out or not. But somebody needs to be the champion of you know those people or those processes or some drive or a push. Yeah. And, I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I have the, the right wisdom here, but uh, yeah, working with people, um, seeing their potential, um, re- recruiting graduate students, uh, pro- probably the most important thing that any of us do, right? Re- re- actually looking at all those applications that come in every year and, and sort of uh, taking a bet on these two or, or that one, um, and, and recruiting them and bringing them in and nurturing them and protecting them and making sure that they get a chance to do the fun part of science, the, the creative imaginative part and the communications part, uh, but you protect them during that period from the administrative part and the, the uh, report writing and, and money uh, hungry part. Um, absolutely critical. And, and, you know, our forebears worked this out back in the Middle Ages uh, with the sort of academic, um, uh, you know, uh, internship kind of uh, of system that we have that we inherited, I guess, from, you know, medieval guilds or something. We, we have sort of journeyman scientists that uh, we, we carry along um, on our uh, strength um, until they're uh, re- ready to go do, do the rest of it themselves. 
and it's one of the most rewarding things there is. It, it, it's just a wonderful thing to now have um, former students who are out there being leaders in the field and have their own students, and even some of them have their own students. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I talked to Anna Harper on this show, for example. You know, one of your one of oh your yeah students, and yeah, and she's doing doing really well at Exeter, and you know, has her has her group and has people she's working with, and it's uh, it's cool cool to to see that. And it's fantastic. I mean, Anna's one of the best students I ever had. Uh, uh, There are several of of my students that have gone on to very good academic careers and it's, it's so gratifying. Yeah. You know, um, on that stuff we were talking about a a minute ago, um, those people that, that uh, leave graduate school and go on and become leaders are the ones that, that can do all those different social parts, right? Yes, mm. they all have to be technically competent. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a sort of minimum bar, uh, but there's more, right? You also have to be a good communicator. You have to be able to pose good questions, explain why they're important, uh, get somebody to pay for them, recruit good students, mentor good students, uh, be yeah. a good mentor, be a good teacher. All of that stuff together yeah. is what makes uh, a good uh, scientific leader um, I think about uh, n- not necessarily academia, but also in, in the larger science realm, uh, you know, lab directors, um, people at the agencies in the United States it would be NASA or the National Science Foundation or the you know, NOAA, the, the uh, Weather and Oceans Bureau. Um, these are people who, uh, who go beyond the technical Um, requirements of the field and become good mentors, good uh, nurturers of of other people's careers. Uh, Leadership in science, as in all walks of life maybe, uh, involves um, communication and and, uh, recruiting and nurturing and bringing people along with you on a journey in ways that are hard to teach, really. You, you can mentor people in that, in, in mentoring, but you can't really, well, not that I know of, you can't teach it in a, in a textbook. Uh, it's the sort of thing that people learn from one another rather than uh, from, I, I can't imagine doing online classes in, in being a scientific leader. Well, there's, uh, I mean, in the general leadership scheme, and this is not me necessarily plugging a specific book, but I'm just mentioning that uh, there's this Brene Brown book called uh, Dare, Dare to Lead or Daring Daring to I Lead, have, something like that. This. Yeah, and she so she's uh, had this kind of famous TED talk. She's a, a shame researcher and studies the psychology of shame and basically mm-hmm. um, found all of the ways in which shame can really be self-sabotaging and really can get in the way and is really like unnecessary <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and she basically took a lot of the principles that she discovered through her research about um, how to be vulnerable in a in a way that um, leads you to in a way that makes it uh, easy easier for you to be a leader or uh, it, it kind of bolsters your capability for leadership by allowing you to be vulnerable and make mistakes and take chances and to deal with to, to she calls it being in the arena. So, you know, to be in the arena and fighting, you know, you have to make yourself vulnerable. You, you might take some damage, you know, you might take some hits, huh. you know, and she basically took those principles and wrote a book on, oh, here's how to be a leader and here's how to develop your leadership 
uh, qualities and capabilities uh, based on her, you know, and her community, her scientific community, decades of, uh, you know, research into motivation and shame and things like that. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so it's, that's, that's I should read this. You, will you send me, a, send me a link? Yes, I will. I will send you a okay. link. You don't have to do it right this second. No, it's okay. I got my little notes over here, which is what you see me um, uh-huh. mess, messing with every now and then. For a while, I had my, my picture over on the side. That was a mistake. I needed to put it right by the camera so that I look <laughs> at the camera. <laughs> uh, I got one more, what have you learned question. Okay. And this is, I'm kind of thinking about mental health and I'm kind of thinking about self-care what's something you've learned about taking care of yourself that maybe you didn't know before? And we could talk about, you know, during this obvious kind of pandemic period or on a longer time scale, if you like, because I feel like people are for a lot of people who have the privilege to be able to stay home. uh, There probably has been a good bit of learning going on about how do I actually like take care of myself in this situation? How do I treat myself well to where I can keep functioning and stay okay? Yeah. Wow. Good, good question. So, um, it's a little bit of a minefield for me. Uh, okay. I need to be, be a little bit uh, cautious how I answer. So, um, actually have quite a lot of experience with mental health issues. My father, uh, was bipolar and, uh, had a huge psychotic break when he was in his forties and never worked again in his life. Um, oh, wow. one of my kids is bipolar, uh, I've had a lot of problems myself. Uh, I've had a surprising number of students uh, who have had very serious mental health issues. In fact, I think that, um, I don't know uh, statistics about this, but my own experience suggests that um, our field is full of people who are very vulnerable to uh, mental illness, that um, there's something about really, really brilliant 24 year olds uh, that uh, when you put a hundred of them in a, in a high pressure situation, some of them have uh, really, really serious difficulties. Um, and so I, I actually, I'm, I'm sort of out beyond the, uh, the, the data on this, but my suspicion is that lots of people in our field struggle with mental illness. Um, yeah, at a level, a, a level that's uh, clinical, not not just the the standard uh, young adult difficulties. Um, so uh, I, I'm glad you bring it up. Um, all of us are vulnerable as people. Um, all of us are biological organisms. We have things that we have to deal with that uh, we don't get to just skip because we're scientists. Um, We wind up in relationship difficulties or health difficulties uh, and have to uh, navigate those just like everybody else. Um, Plus we have a hard job, right? The, the, the kind of, um, the kind of, professional challenge that um, grad students in in the sciences go through in their uh, young adult years can often uh, lead to feelings of inadequacy or feelings of um, of shame like you're saying of uh, not not measuring up the sort of imposter syndrome like someday they'll all figure out that I don't know all this stuff um, it just keeps going 
you, you go on with your career and, uh, you know, I'm 60 years old and I still have those feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, we, we must face those, those demons and, um, and um, deal with them. We can't just sweep it under the rug. We do have those feelings. We do have those difficulties. Yeah. Uh, in my own life, um, I was in psychotherapy most of my adult life. Uh, it helped a lot. Uh, I, I think many, many, many scientists uh, struggle with work-family balance issues. Um, I, I see an awful lot of young colleagues now in the COVID uh, pandemic that are deeply, deeply troubled by the need to keep their research moving uh, at the same time that they suddenly have young kids at home and they're trying yeah. to deal with, uh, with their responsibility as, as parents of, of grieving children, children who've been yanked out of their social, uh, social situations. Uh, some of them are having a home of school. Uh, almost all of them have suddenly had to learn how to teach online with no training whatsoever, uh, manage their research groups online. It, it's just killer. And if you're feeling like that, join the club. I mean, I am, I am lucky that uh, my kids are grown up, that uh, they're out of the house. Um, I'm happily married. I, I get to share the, uh, the, the quarantine uh, with a loving spouse, and that's all just hunky-dory. Um, but, but not everybody's like that. Uh, I have also been, um, been very lucky in that I'm sort of reaching towards the end of my career, uh, my research is winding down. Um, I really just want to teach for the rest of my life anyway. Uh, and so learning to teach online, not such a bad thing. I'm good with that. Um, but, but honestly, um, this, is, this is just a terrible crisis uh, for so, so many people. Not just academics, but yes, academics, right? P- people in our field uh, are burdened in, in a, in a so almost superhuman way. People are being asked to do stuff that there's just no way they can rise up to, to deal, to deliver at the level that they're expected to deliver uh, professionally to the funding agencies that are paying for their research, uh, as a mentor to their graduate students uh, whose research they, they are responsible for and even whose lives they're responsible for to some degree, at the same time as their children, their partners, uh, their, their aging parents who, you know, mustn't get, get the, the disease. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Ah, head explode. It's, it's terrible. That's something that my wife and I talk about sometimes that one of the hard things is just what you're describing is there are no boundaries anymore. It's just all happening. And when there's one thing <laughs> you're just, right. you know, you're at your house and it's all happening there. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you might find yourself having to switch hats constantly, you know, okay. Work call, yeah. uh, school time, uh, parent, uh, I, partner, uh, friend. My, no, yeah. my hat is off to you. I, I, uh, I don't know how you do it. Um, I am, I am very, uh, impressed, deeply impressed, <laughs> humbled. By, by, you know, people your age going through all that. Um, it was bad enough for me. Uh, both my parents are dead. Um, both my kids are in their 20s and moved out. Um, but I still have to struggle. But both my kids got COVID-19 uh, in, in the last month. 
they were both very, very ill. Uh, one of them, I was just terrified. He, he was in just awful, awful shape. That's crazy. Uh, they, yeah, they it must both have been horrible. Recovered. It was horrible. Yeah. Uh, what, one of them is 22, works in a supermarket, and is exposed every day to, to people who uh, are unknowingly carrying this virus. Uh, you know, everybody's in masks and gloves, and they're trying to limit the number of people in the stores. Uh, but she's she got sick, and yeah. she brought it home, and her brother got sick. And uh, at the same time, um, maybe this isn't happening where you are, but here, uh, people come into the store without a mask, and uh, some 16-year-old minimum wage employee has to tell them to get a mask and then they threaten to kill them or, you know, go home and get a gun. It's just awful. Um, and my situation is so much easier than, than my kids because they, they can't afford to just stay home. They don't have jobs where they can just stay home and work on a computer. They actually have to get up in the morning and go in, uh, and, and face, uh, near certainty being exposed to the virus. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, for 12 bucks an hour. It's, it's just terrible. Talk about feeling vulnerable. You know, yeah. they're, they're put in a very vulnerable position. They are vulnerable. You know? They don't just yeah. feel vulnerable. They are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> There's the reality of it. And then also the experience of it, you know, yeah. it's uh, they know they're vulnerable. They are, and they're, they're aware of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad they, I'm glad they're okay. I'm glad they yeah. pulled through. Um, and I'm glad you're, you and your wife are doing all right. I'm glad you're both, <laughs> Staying, staying well and able to, you know, isolate. Um, you too. Thanks. What, what are you doing? Like, how, how are you doing the self-care thing, though? What sort of things are you doing? Well, uh, so, I mean, this has just been such a, a transition. My wife retired uh, basically at New Year's, and mm. uh, the very first thing we did in her retirement was um, go live on a ship. Right. You on <laughs> so the cruise. so yep. we yep. went and uh, taught on semester at sea, um, and then that was abruptly ended halfway around the world, and we had to get home uh, in the middle of the of the pandemic, which was traumatic and difficult. Uh, and then as soon as we got home, we were quarantined. So uh, it's been really weird. Um, yeah. I, mean, I read a lot, uh, go on walks, we're gardening, um, I do astronomy. You know, I told you I wanted to be an astronomer when I was a little kid. Um, now I'm old and rich, so I have a nice telescope and cameras and computers, and I have a, it's really quite a demanding hobby. Um, you know, some guys do fly fishing and I do uh, photon fishing. So I have all this uh, <laughs> astronomy stuff that I learn. Um, I'm writing Python to control my telescope and my cameras <laughs> and uh, learning uh, iOS programming and Swift so that I can uh, get my sensor on the garage roof to send me uh, phone messages in the middle of the night that it's raining and I have to come out and cover the telescope and hmm. I have all these like hobbies that I do. Um, I have a community circle that I am part of in the neighborhood with people my age uh, that we get together on Zoom and we talk about you know what we're doing and people share I saw these birds in my tree and I took a picture does anybody know what the birds are or uh, my kid is sick. Can somebody help me to, you know, find, uh, supplies or anybody have masks? Uh, so so we have kind of a neighborhood support group. Um, 
I had, uh, I, I'm going on transitional retirement, which means um, my research is basically shutting down. I'm not taking new students. Uh, I'm going on uh, reduced salary through the university. Um, and mostly I figured that would look like uh, a lot of travel and visiting other universities and uh, <laughs> sort of an extended period of semi-sabbatical, but obviously it's not. I'm locked up in my house. Yeah. So I'm having to kind of reinvent um, identity. Who the hell am I now that I'm not writing proposals and annual reports and uh, graduating new students? I, you know, I have to figure out what I'm here for. Um, oddly similar to when I was 22, uh, now that I'm 60. Uh, and I'm retiring young, you know, most scientists uh, get to be more like 65 or 70 before they, uh, they, they leave it behind. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been very weird. Uh, not what I expected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can relate to the weirdness part of it. And uh, yeah, here we have good days and we have bad days and days in between and the, the, uh, I mean, the schoolwork stuff I've really learned in a concrete way that like, I don't know how to motivate a kid to do <laughs> schoolwork. Like I can offer to help and I can try to like, okay, let's do some, but really like there's a magic something that the, t that his teachers know how to do. Oh, his, there he is. Just eight. I've just got the one eight year old. Yeah. yeah. But there's a magic thing that my, that, that his teachers in TA, they know how to do to like get the right environment in which he like wants to do something. Mm. And I really don't know how to recreate that here because we already have our established family dynamic. We can't right. like, it's really hard to like suddenly break that and make a completely new thing. Like you we can try, but no, not really, not really. Yeah. You can like, um, I can't even imagine doing that. I mean, my, my kids uh, would never put up with that. I mean, they, there's one uh, sort of power dynamic at school that's just completely different than what happens with parents. And yeah. you have to be the nurturing parent. You, you can't uh, switch roles and suddenly become the sort of authority figure that, uh, that a teacher can be. No, no way. Yeah. That was uh, a, a phrase I've heard is that well your number one job is to get right now like to all of the parents who are staying home with their kids like your number one job is if you can help your kids get out of this with as little trauma as possible then that's good like they can catch up on the learning stuff they can catch up on the schoolwork stuff but they it would be a lot harder to recover from trauma than it would be from you know missing a couple months of math absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just couldn't agree more. I, I think a similar kind of dynamic happens with, um, with, with undergrad and grad students. Mm -hmm. uh, you, I, I don't, do you supervise grad students? I do have some. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have heard uh, over and over again from my colleagues that their students are going through trauma. Uh, that that students are um, we, m most of us as faculty don't know how to teach online. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I started doing online courses a year, a little over a year ago, um, just for fun, and I found that it's completely different than in-person teaching. 
Oh, yeah. uh, and yet, in the middle of this semester, uh, all faculty everywhere suddenly started teaching online with no prep, with no uh, background or uh, training. And almost all of them have uh, fallen back on essentially just lecturing over the computer, which is terrible. Nobody can learn like that. So it, it's, uh, it's no wonder that students are having trouble with that. It's no wonder that faculty are feeling terrible about it. Uh, and a lot of faculty are, um, are asked or challenged or at least perceive that there's an imperative that they uh, maintain certain standards of academic rigor. And because they're not getting the, the face time with their students, they're overloading them with projects and with homework to the point that students are, are just freaking out and, and all those normal uh, mental health issues are bubbling up. I mean, I think the potential for generational trauma is just awful with, with this. And I hope that uh, everybody um, is, is made aware of this and um, have some compassion for God's sakes, these poor kids, these poor, uh, not just eight-year-olds, but 18-year-olds and 28-year-olds. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody is traumatized by this. Yeah, it's going to be, be absolutely. Yeah, completely agree with that. It's going to be like one of the life-defining things for especially people who are kind of in that coming-of-age kind of range right now. It's going to be like a defining factor. In my, you know, my parents' generation, it was World War II. Uh, it, it, me, somewhere in between my parents and my generation, it was Vietnam. I mean, it, it, these are giant earth-shaking things that uh, world historical events that, that change the way society and history move. Mm -hmm. uh, we are in the middle of it. And um, one of the most important things I think is, is compassion. Absolutely. For other people and for yourself too, you can yeah, yeah. You have to be kind to yourself. Um, well, is there anything else you want to talk about? How you, how you feel? Yeah, that's lots of fun. Th thank you, Dan, for organizing this. I even have to start watching you. <laughs> I, it's, a, it's just an audio podcast right now, although you've got me wondering if I should upload the videos somewhere as well. I don't know where, uh, but I guess, I guess just YouTube maybe. Maybe you throw them on YouTube. That might be fine. It would. Uh, yeah. I, yeah I didn't realize it was audio only. You pretty must have told me, but I forgot. Yeah, no, that's fine. Don't worry. I mean, I've just... This got me scratching my chin now. Like, can I... Hmm, should I? Should I put them on YouTube? I don't know... Uh, well, I'll, I'll think about it. It's fine. Right. But, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's great. I'm glad you're doing it. So how often do you do this? Well, um, that has been an adjusting story. So for a while, they were every two weeks. <laughs> I, I had to cut back to monthly. Um, and then last month, because people were kind of home and I was able to schedule a lot of interviews without too much trouble, uh, I tried one a week. But then I noticed that the numbers actually went down, and I was like, "Ah, that's saturation." Like, you know. Although people will download your podcast. Well, I'm really obnoxious in that I kind of uh, keep that to myself. Uh, oh, okay. So for, forgive me for being obnoxious about it, but no, no, it's it's a number I'm I'm happy with, um, and it's. Uh, <laughs> but thanks for letting me be no, weird, about, weird about the fine. number. Um, yeah, it's uh, so. The, the the things that I wanted to end on, I wanted to say a couple of things, if that's all right. Um, so one was that I remember when my PhD advisor um, 
it left Colorado State to go to Georgia Tech, I had a decision to make as to whether I was going to physically, you know, stay in Fort Collins or go to Atlanta. Right. And I love Fort Collins and I would have loved some more time there, but it made sense for me and my family to go to Atlanta to follow my advisor to Georgia sure. Tech to be closer to the grandparents for one thing for, for that time. And then um, also just, I kind of wanted to stay in that same research group, but you've, you've very kindly offered to kind of let, let me stay in Fort Collins where you would be my kind of effective local supervisor, but you know, Taka Ito could stay my official supervisor. So sure. I, I didn't end up taking up on that obviously, but I really appreciated it. And I thought that was a really nice, uh, really excellent offer. And I appreciated that, uh, well, that kindness. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that it worked out for you. And, um, you know, talk is wonderful. Um, I, I'm it, obviously you've done, you've done very well for yourself. So mm. you, you did what was right for you. Good job. <laughs> and I, I wanted to say that I was really glad to be, you know, in your department and I was really glad to be in your cl introduction to climate kind of class as well. Cause I took that graduate level, you know, climate class with you. And, you know, in addition to getting some more of the kind of physical science background, you know, I got a really nice in-depth uh, introduction to the three S's <laughs> you were talking about and that kind of particular message. And hearing your perspective was really useful for me for many reasons. Uh, one of them being the, the physics department that I came out of, so where I was teaching just before I came over to Fort Collins, one of the big personalities in that physics department, maybe I'll leave him anonymous, maybe I won't drag his name into it, right. But at the time, uh, he definitely uh, has, uh, I, I mean, he would go to the, he, he would be somebody who would be at home at the Heartland Institute conference. You know, he's a big, you know, kind of, I think it's fair to call him a climate denier. I think it's fair to call him a climate denier. Like, and it, it was a weird contrast because I thought he was actually like a really good physics teacher. You know, if he was talking about, you know, mechanics and electricity and magnetism and relativity and like, he was actually really good at teaching that stuff. But it, it, this, he almost like transformed into something else when this, you know, climate change topic came up. This, you know, he would uh, get very, very angry about it. Wow. Um, you know, he would get, very kind of defensive about it and he would uh, i don't even know what the paper is but he would talk about this one paper from 40 years ago saying like well it's all just you know the clouds are going to adjust and there's going to be an adjustment in the cloud feedback and everything's going to be fine and that contrast was really striking to me and i think um that that was i don't want to overuse the word trauma but i'm trying to think of like it certainly was striking and it certainly was like you know because this was somebody that uh, for a while I had kind of looked up to, we actually got into some like arguments in the hallway, but it, it would, it, it, he would say bizarre stuff like, um, well, if you go off and study this stuff, you know, he's like, well, either one or two things are going to happen to you. Either you're going to get drummed out of the field because you don't fall in line or you're going to get brainwashed like everybody. <laughs> like, and it was just such like extreme language and just such like divisive language. Yeah. And, uh, really was really striking. So, you know, while I was at Fort Collins, I, I I didn't agree with them and I never agreed with them on in that extreme view of what would happen to me. I believed in my own integrity and I believed in like, well, I'll, I'll go learn and I'll see how it strikes me. And if I end up disagreeing with the scientific community, then I'll deal with that then, but I'm not going to worry about it until, you know, 
uh, unless that happens and it, it didn't happen. Um, you know, the, uh, so I was looking for having come out of that, um, those confrontations with him and having come out of that kind of, uh, the, 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 the mild trauma that that did leave me with and the kind of residue of that, I was looking for alternative, you know, perspectives on climate and alternative orientations about like, well, how do I, you know, picture myself and what I know about the science and my kind of stance on the, the overall social political problem. I wasn't like looking to take on an entire worldview. That's not what I'm saying, but like your message was really helpful for me because it gave me at least something to say, okay, well, there's a good, good example of, of something that addresses the, the physics, the social dimension, it ha- but it has a positivity to it as well. It has an optimistic, you know, uh, optimistic, um, I don't want to say flavor, but I'm struggling to think of a better word. It has that, that kind of, yeah, it does. And that's something that, that resonated with me because, I mean, we were talking about Carl Sagan earlier, and Carl Sagan, you know, had this incredible, beautiful view of humanity as he, he like saw the potential in humanity. He saw the beautiful things and the amazing things in what we can do. And that really resonated with me. So I was I was kind of looking for something in the climate sphere, in the climate science sphere, that resonated with that positivity that I felt from that kind of Carl Sagan tradition. And yours, your picture was a really nice fit for that for me. Like it was a really, it really fit into. There was a place kind of waiting, waiting for it. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful thing to say. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm glad that worked for you. And. Uh... <laughs> super happy that I was able to, to help with that. Um, I, I think you're not alone, right? So many people are um, bombarded with uh, a sort of apocalyptic story of climate change that is um, essentially being uh, projected through a lens of shame and guilt. Mm, yeah. And, um, I, I think there's a, uh, a a big part of the socio-political problem is is that right there, uh, and then as you sort of brought up earlier, um, there are bad guys that are sort of um, leveraging that shame and that guilt to uh, tell people that they should feel ashamed for for mm. making for destroying the world, right? And it, only if people can become ascetics and go live in a cave can you get out of this. And it's just bullshit. Uh, we, we, we have to stop setting stuff on fire. That does not mean we have to stop enjoying life. Um, it does not mean people have to stay poor in the developing world. Uh, what it means is that we have a lot of work to do to build a sustainable energy and uh, economic system that, that can provide a good quality of life for billions and billions of people. And, and that's a much a more uh, resonant human position and B it's, it's more true. (laughs) It's actually (laughs) accurate. (laughs) Um, So, so I think um, I'm glad that you took that away. And I, I mean, I am sort of an evangelist about it and and that's part of what I really enjoyed about being on semester at sea to to come back to where we started here uh, was the opportunity to, to sort of have, um, an audience of 560 20 year olds for that message um, 
who I got to live with, you know, 24 hours a day on the ship. And I got to know them as people and I got to have lunch and dinner with them and take them out on the bow to do stargazing and, uh, you, you know, go snorkeling on, on coral reefs with them and so forth. Um, and I feel like th there was an opportunity for a deeper level of uh, engagement and impact on those 560 students than, than I can even come close to in a classroom uh, full of, of graduate students here at CSU. Um, I, I, I think there's a, there's a magic to, to being able to, um, to connect to people as an educator, the kind of magic you were talking about with your, your eight-year-old's teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, um, God love them, they give us this platform. Uh, here, stand on this stage in front of 300 impressionable, brilliant 20-year-olds and, and have at it. Oh my God, what a gift. Um, and to do it in, in such an amazing uh, set of physical circumstances, uh, what, what a privilege, you, you know, what, what a wonderful thing. Um, I don't know if your career allows it, but consider it. it it's just a, an incredible transformative experience. Almost every student on the ship uh, will remember for the rest of their lives that four months as being uh, absolutely transformative. And to be, to be allowed in, to, to be allowed to be part of, of a change like that uh, to so many people. Um, it's just fantastic. Look at that. We came full circle. Yeah, Click. I like it. <laughs> nice little, it's tied up now. Nice little, yeah. nice little package. Way to go. You're a good yeah. interviewer. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Well, Scott, I'm glad to know you. I'm glad that I was in your department for a couple of you years. Do. Yeah, thanks. And, thanks uh, for, for having me. And um, I, I look forward to it. I'm going to start, start finding your podcast online and listening to, to hear other people too. Okay, sure. Yeah, go back and listen to Anna's obviously very different world situation, but yeah, Anna Harper's on there. Great. Um, thanks again, Scott. Thank you, and good luck to you. Stay well. Um, be kind. You too. Have fun. Thanks. Oh, and uh, Steph says hello. I think you, you met her briefly. Yeah, I don't know yeah, you I met her. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Yeah, she says hi. <laughs> okay, well, hi, Steph. There you go. And now it's recorded. So that's great. I can just play it for her later. So it must be, it must be dinner time for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Getting there. Getting there. Is it a lunch, lunch for you roughly? Yeah. Lunch time for yeah. us. And what was it? 7 15 PM for you? It is. Yeah. That's yep. it. So that's All right. Fine. Well, nice to talk with you and um, keep up the good work. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Thanks Scott. Bye-bye. Okay. Right. There you have it. My conversation with professor Scott Denning. Thanks for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed that. And thanks again to Scott Denning for his time and for his insight and for sharing his enthusiasm and his story with us. You can find Scott Denning on Twitter at AirScottDenning, like I said in the intro already. And you can learn more about his message at simpleseriousolvable.org. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod. Like I mentioned, the music for this episode, both in the intro and what's playing underneath, it was provided by Walter Hanna, so thanks very much to Walter for that. I said I would share something personal at the end of these podcasts, even if it's a small thing. So I finally managed to go for a walk today. I've been staying inside way too much uh, during this 
last couple months of lockdown. The restrictions are easing a bit, I guess, but, you know, I, I'm still a bit risk-averse. I, I think I could go stand to go out a little bit more, uh, at least for the exercise component of it. But, uh, yeah, I'll be back in two weeks with a two-part conversation with one of my favorite scientists. Take care, stay well, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.